Conor McGregor breaks his leg, and I'm going to tell you why he's not done with the UFC. Plus, the situation in Dallas with the Mavericks? Well, I'll, I'll break that one down, and why I'm even more excited than ever for a season of Hard Knocks. It's the gray area. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast. Episode 7 from me recording from my home here in Texas. My name is Grayson Singleton, as always. Thank you for listening and spending part of your day with me. Thanks always to the Ocali Media Group at Oklahoma State for distributing this across the various platforms. Anybody see that the Gulf caught on fire? Not just, I'm not talking about the beach. Not talking about Orange Beach. Not talking about somewhere in Galveston. The water in the Gulf of Mexico caught on fire. And you know, and you know something's bad when the water caught on fire. So basically what happened was that there was a petroleum company who, and I'll get to this in a second, basically was cutting costs and paid the price for it. So there's some leaky pipes, there's some oil in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, and there was a lightning storm in the area, and supposedly the lightning hit the water, which meant it hit the oil and set off a fire that took firefighters five hours to put out. The Gulf of Mexico was on fire for five hours. Now, the reason I bring up the petroleum company and their cost-cutting or basically being cheap is that the company was found in a report by Bloomberg News. The company was found to be $113 billion in debt. So one can assume that they were using some pipes to run oil that definitely needed to be replaced. Now, I don't have the number in front of me as to how much oil was in the ocean when the lightning supposedly struck and set the whole body of water on fire. But it was enough oil that it took five hours for the fire to be put out. And basically, I wonder... Why, what's with all these oil spills in the Gulf? And they don't happen incredibly, incredibly frequently, so we forget that they happen. I have to like actually go back and find when this stuff happens. But the majority of oil spills that, hap- that happen around the United States happen in the Gulf of Mexico. And offshore drilling, particularly when we think of around the Houston area, has resulted in some catastrophes. Like this one. Now, I'm not going to go on a climate change rant like I did last week, because I don't think this has anything to do with climate change. This has something to do with human negligence and an absence of common sense. (laughs) The funny part of the story, which literally I heard a couple hours before I came here to record this, the funny part of this story is also in this same Bloomberg report, there was reported no damage to the environment as a result of this oil spill. Now look, we know people lie to us all the time. Obviously, this is a company that's in a financial crisis, so they're going to try to cover themselves as much as possible. First of all, there was oil in the the Gulf of Mexico. Okay, there's going to be environmental damage there. Like, we don't know how many species of marine life were harmed by just the presence of oil in the Gulf of Mexico. 
That's even before we get to the part where the Gulf of Mexico was on fire for almost a quarter of a day. And then you combine that with the certain chemicals that fire departments use to put this stuff out. So there's three cases right there that can probably undoubtedly cause environmental damage. You know, one of the things as a media person that I like to report on and talk about is stupid stuff. And I don't cover pop culture or what, you know, I don't usually comment on what the TikTok famous people world has done, even though Addison Ray cracked me up this weekend talking about how she studied broadcast journalism for three months to prepare for a UFC coverage. Addison was only up there because of her TikTok, not because she studied broadcast journalism at three months, reportedly at LSU. Um, I've studied sports media, basically the same thing, at Oklahoma State for about a year. Put me on there, UFC. If you want to go see when I did that, uh, follow me on Twitter at Gray underscore Singleton 2. Um, <laughs> but no, I don't usually comment on this stuff, but when stupid stuff gets into sports or political culture, oh boy, I'm all over that. Because it's just so funny to me how people can put something out. There's no environmental damage after the Gulf was on fire for five hours. Anyway, um, just as entertaining, speaking of Addison Rae at UFC 265, uh, how about UFC 265? That was quite a spectacle. Um, unfortunately, my streaming website that I use to stream this stuff, because there's no way I'm paying 60 bucks and this time 90 for a UFC event, uh, my streamer decided to cut out about 10 minutes before the Poirier-McGregor fight, but the main card leading up to that was quite incredible. Um, we saw Greg Hardy get knocked out by some Australian dude, which proceeded to take a million shoeys and probably catch some kind of disease in the process. Um, look, I'm usually, I'm usually here for the beer drinkers, but that was a little much. But, <laughs> obviously the main story is, y'all see what happened to Conor McGregor's leg? Um, and this is somebody, coming from somebody who, when I was younger and had more free time on my hands, I would go on YouTube and watch the compilations of people breaking their legs. So, I'm very familiar with what happened to Joe Theismann, um, Kevin Ware, Paul George. I don't rewatch the Alex Smith one just because of what ensued for Alex Smith. I mean, the dude almost lost his life and his leg. And don't judge me, because if you're listening to this, you're probably doing the exact same thing, or have done the exact same thing at some point. But, Conor McGregor's leg busting was... Not an accident. It was not a freak accident. And it has basically been a culmination of the demise of Conor McGregor. And Landon Buffet on the Spin and Sports Podcast and I, we've talked about the fall of Conor McGregor from UFC superstardom to where he is now. But when I was watching UFC 265 and my sister was in the living room with me and uh, she said something very telling 
about the state of mixed martial arts, and I'll get to that in a second. But the fact that Conor McGregor's leg broke in the way that it did by the action that it did is not really a surprise when you think about how Conor McGregor has been played by his by his opponents. And as my computer is really freezing right now, here we go. The last two fights that Conor McGregor has been a part of, both against Dustin Poirier, and then before that against uh, Cowboy Cerrone, his opponents have attacked his calves ruthlessly. That's just what they do. So the fact, and then on Saturday, Poirier was beating the crap out of Conor McGregor. And it was leg kick after leg kick after leg kick to where those bones in his leg just eventually gave out to where Conor McGregor, when he took a step back and tried to plant all his weight there, it just snapped in half and it looked like he literally was stepping on his own foot. If you haven't seen the pictures, go Google them. It's quite, it's quite fascinating how his leg broke. But this is going to be a very controversial opinion. Conor McGregor might be the most overrated superstar that sports has ever seen. Let me explain. In the fight game, which is a one-on-one single combat sport, whether it's boxing or mixed martial arts, a record of 22-6 and is not superstardom. And that's what Conor McGregor's at right now. He's 22-6. and He took multiple years off to pursue a career as an entrepreneur in the whiskey business, which, by the way, he just sold the proper number 12 whiskey business for, I believe it was upwards of $130 million, something like that. But when McGregor was on the rise, he was beating guys like Diego Brando. He beat Max Holloway, which is actually a very quality opponent, but he was beating guys who were just as small or smaller than him. And Conor McGregor is 5'9", 155 pounds. Conor McGregor's fame as a fighter does not come from his hands. It comes from his mouth and his persona. Because if you take that away, he's a good fighter that had a very short run as one of the tops in the world. But but that run was marred by shenanigan after shenanigan after shenanigan. We can go back to when he was tossing glass beer bottles at his opponent's bus. I don't remember which opponent that was. But after he fought... Eddie Alvarez, and beat him by technical knockout after he beat Nate Diaz in a rematch. He didn't fight for nearly two years. It was 23 months until he fought again, and that was the fight against Khabib Nurmagomedov. And Khabib, we, 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 know, we know what Khabib did to him on that particular night. Um, it's not, it, 
it 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 wasn't something that <laughs> I don't know I don't know I don't even know how to put this. It was it wasn't something that Conor McGregor fans want to relive. It was it was a total beatdown. But in the fight game, you cannot be taking close to two years off and expect to beat quality opponents. Now, after that 2018 fight against Khabib, he did take almost two years off and then come back to face Cowboy Cerrone, who is a good up-and-coming fighter, but he's not that good. It was basically almost a setup to get Connor back in. And what my sister said this past weekend was very interesting because Dustin Poirier was the favorite in that fight, and rightfully so. But she's not a UFC fan. She's not even a casual UFC fan as I am. I consider myself a casual UFC fan. I know the likes of Khabib, Connor, Poirier, Justin Gaethje, yada, yada, yada. But even she was like, why isn't Connor the favorite? And that's why Connor's not done with UFC. Even after this horrific, disgusting, gut wrenching, complete break in his leg, Connor McGregor is not done with the UFC. And Conor McGregor's presence has almost turned the UFC operation into what WWE is. And what I mean by that is that WWE performers do sometimes get out of fighting, but they still have a significant presence in the world wrestling entertainment. Because their name, whether they're fighting or not, will continue to draw eyes and their box office. Conor McGregor, on the other hand, is that same thing, except Conor McGregor is going to try to fight. I believe he will try to fight Dustin Poirier again for a fourth time after Poirier won the trilogy by technical knockout via the doctor stoppage after Conor, Conor's leg just gave out on him. Um, And obviously we all know about the shenanigans after the fight with what Conor said about trying to basically threaten Dustin Poirier's life. Save the fact that he also says something very derogatory about Dustin Poirier's wife. To which I found Poirier's response to be the epitome of what every dude should want in a wife. When he said his wife is as solid as a rock, he's she's not going to be in Connor's DMs. I mean, that was a picturesque response to that and no I don't condone Connor talking about somebody's wife after his leg was broken by the way why was why did Connor have so much energy after his leg just snapped I mean he was literally being interviewed with a microphone in his hand while the doctors are applying a splint to a clean break I don't like I don't know I probably would I don't care how much adrenaline I had I'd probably be passed out or at least not cognizant enough to be able to talk smack to a dude who just kicked my leg into oblivion to the point where if I stepped back, it snapped. But this is the kind of theater that will keep Conor McGregor around UFC, whether or not he's winning fights or not. Now, obviously, Conor McGregor, who once held two championship belts in two different divisions, that, that should be off the table. There's, there should be no title fights. For Conor McGregor. As a matter of fact, I don't think he should see another rematch against Dustin Poirier until he at least wins a couple fights to get him to that point. 
Because now he has lost to Poirier twice in the last 16 months. One by technical knockout and one by a doctor stoppage. And because of what Dustin Poirier was doing to Connor in that first round, I believe that is a legitimate win for Poirier. Legitimate. But now we're in a situation where Connor has lost three of his last four fights. All three, two, two of the three, to Dustin Poirier. And and the other, if and the other two could be Nurmagomedov, obviously. But because UFC, particularly in the heavyweight division, has struggled to find up-and-coming guys that can command the sort of attention that McGregor has for so long, the U- Dana White and UFC will have no option but to keep Conor McGregor around for as long as they possibly can. And Conor McGregor himself knows this because Conor McGregor continues to take a couple years off. And somehow, some way, we still talk about it. Elite fighters do not go from, I'm going to fight in late 2016 and then not fight again until late 2018 and then not fight again until the middle of 2020. That doesn't happen. But Conor McGregor knows that he's playing by different rules when it comes to UFC. Dana White is allowing it, or really seeing that he uh, he has really no choice. Because of a lack of up-and-comers in the heavyweight division. And the lack of lambastic personality in the form of Justin Gaethy or Dustin Poirier. Now you have guys like Israel Adesanya, but again, not so much of a personality as Conor McGregor. Nate Diaz doesn't fight but so much. And this is the state of mixed martial arts, state of boxing too. This is why fights with the Paul brothers command so much attention. Because there's just not any up-and-coming heavyweight boxers that will command top dollar. They're all, they're all guys like Errol Spence Jr., Canelo Alvarez. Guys that are in the lower divisions that not that have historically not meant as much. So the fight game, to me, is... Obviously, it's shrunk in popularity since, I guess, my dad's decade. Or generation, rather. But... Is Conor McGregor one of the last personalities that we have? Because that's what UFC is going to need in order to finally come to grips that Conor McGregor is not a superstar fighter anymore. He hasn't been for the better part of five years. But the UFC will not be able to move on from him because even though that there's good fighters, Poirier, coming up, there's not that personality that commands the level of box office that McGregor does. Okay, so the rest of the show is going to be Dallas-based. And I was debating, do I want to talk about the Mavericks or the Cowboys? And I think I'm going to talk about the Mavericks right now. So the Dallas Mavericks have gone a complete orga, orga, oh my goodness, organizational structural, <laughs> organization structural flip. The old regime is out. Rick Carlisle, who can sometimes be labeled as archaic, is no longer the coach. He's the coach of the Indiana Pacers, and Jason Kidd has taken over. Donnie Nelson, 
the GM who has been there so long, he is credited with drafting none other than Dirk Nowitzki, is also out. They have hired Nike executive Nico Harrison as the de facto GM. Not to mention gambler-turned-analytics expert Bob Volgaris has a lot of say in the basketball operations department. So, one of my first episodes when I recorded, started recording from my bedroom was that the Mavericks were stuck, and obviously that had a lot to do with what I think is the inability to move off of Kristaps Porzingis. Except for the fact that Kristaps Porzingis is the perfect counterpart to Luka Doncic. And then there was a Brian Windhorst report that came out last week, and then there's reports that have been following, that there's not a lot of superstars that want to play with Luka Doncic. I think I teased this either a week or two ago, or or last week. But there's not a lot of superstars that want to come play with the Slovenian sniper or whatever people call Luka these days. And here's the reason why. So the, this whole Mavericks thing is has so many layers to it. And the first layer is Luka Doncic's game himself. And what that means is that Luka is the most ball-dominant player in the NBA. It's a pick between him or James Harden. I think right now it's him because we saw how James Harden is able to operate off the ball this year. If there's one thing we can say that has developed about James Harden's game is that this year when he played with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, he was not nearly as ball-dominant. Luka Doncic has taken that baton from him as the most ball-dominant player in the NBA. But he's so ball-dominant that any other superstar would get lost. And here's the thing with basketball players. Basketball players are very attention-getters. They cra- that's just how basketball players work. They crave attention from the media. That's why you see the biggest names are have these magnificent personalities and why Kawhi Leonard is such is such a, a variant from the from typical NBA players. Whether it's the Steph Curry's of the world, the James Harden's of the world, Ben Simmons, who isn't a superstar, but he lives that kind of life. Devin Booker will start doing it as well. Kobe Bryant was out there. LeBron James in earlier years before he started moving his endeavors to more business things that are still that that are still front page news. Basketball players love attention. They're like wide receivers of football, except not as babyish with their attitudes. And superstars, particularly, are not going to want to go bury themselves somewhere in a city that already has an established superstar that also commands 80% of the touches. That's just not going to work. So you're not going to get Kawhi Leonard to come to Dallas. You're not going to get a Paul George to come to Dallas. You're not going to get a Damian Lillard to come to Dallas. And and how I know that you can't get another backcourt superstar is because you ran Dennis Smith Jr. out of town. Now, obviously, those two were not going to work, period, but it was, a, but it should have been a foretelling that you can't really get another backcourt superstar to work well with Luka Doncic. 
Also, number two, if you're going to get a superstar offensive player to come to him, sometimes those players don't play defense. So I'm thinking of the people like the Devin Bookers of the world. Devin Booker, as lethal as an offensive scorer as he is, leaves some to be desired on defense. Now, he's not an abysmal defender. He's not James Harden. He's not Carmelo Anthony. And he's defended better in the playoffs. But Devin Booker is not a good defender. As a matter of fact, you see the Bucks going after him. You saw the Clippers attack him ruthlessly in the conference finals. He's just He just doesn't have it on the defensive end. Now, is there time in his career for him to get better? Yes, he's 26 years old. Um, guys like Jason Tatum. Not, not, a, not as bad of a defender as Devin Booker, but not a great defender. Bradley Beal, also not a great defender. These would be guys that you could possibly throw in next to Luka. So say you maybe get somebody like that. Even a Tobias Harris. Now, you're, now your problem defensively for the Mavericks is also exacerbated. Because Luka, as great of an offensive arsenal as he has, as great as skill set is, he's too slow to stay with anybody in this day and age. When guys are more athletic. Not to mention as big as him. He can't stay in front of anybody. So now you've got him, and you've got Porzingis, who also can't play defense. And then you've got another guy who may be able to play some offense and give you, you know, 19 to 23 points a game, but also can't stop anybody. So now you're, you're inching closer and closer and closer. And by the way, with the, with the game that the Mavericks play and will want to play in terms of having more possessions in the game, you're going to get to the point where the Mavericks are the worst defensive team in the league because they have no defensive stoppers at all. So that's number two. So you've got ball dominance, you have no defense, and then the, the shot selection from Luka. Now, maybe this is something Jason Kidd reigns in, and this is where Jason Kidd can either be boom or bust for Dallas. Either Jason Kidd is going to reign this sort of undesirable shot, shot selection from Luka in, or he's going to be young enough and be relatable enough to Luka that he allows it. And that's where you turn off superstars as well. Because while Luka Doncic sh- can score you 28 points a game, which he has done the last couple years, his shot selection's bad at times. Yeah, he can get into the paint and give you a little runner here. He can finish at the rim. He can even hit a couple threes, but sometimes his shot selection is poor to be nice. That's what, I, that's what I've wondered from Luka Doncic. So now, if you're Luka, do you want to change your game up so you can attract another superstar to come with you? Because the experiment with Kristaps Porzingis was an utter failure. We saw that in the playoffs. Now, how the Mavericks will be able to move on from him, I don't know. Will teams that say, hey, we're going to trade, we will trade with you for Porzingis, but will you, but you're going to have to give us something. Will that something be Jalen Brunson? Will that something be Tim Hardaway Jr., who I would assume the Mavericks would want to hold on to? That somebody will not be Josh Richardson because Josh Richardson has a $15 million player option that he definitely will opt into coming off of a season like he was, which was 
in layman's terms, bad. So the Mavericks, I did say, I have we've talked about this before. The Mavericks are stuck, but it's more it's more than just Kristaps Porzingis. It is Luka Doncic as well. And this is where Luka really has to take control of his own legacy. Because the number one pick in the NBA draft the year he came out, 2018, is DeAndre Ayton. He's playing in the finals. Now, is it because of him? Probably not. But his career and his evolution as a player has seen a drastic uptick. The number five player taken in that draft. Trey Young. Trey Young is taking his team to a conference final. Jason Tatum, who a year ago I said I would take over Luka Doncic because of his health and because of his playoff experience, has been to a conference final before. And another time has been to a semifinal. Luka Doncic, my point is, has not been able to take his team out of the first round. And yes, he's run into the Clippers. But he also was in a situation where he had a 2-0 lead this year after winning both games on the road. Now, the now the Mavericks also have not been a very good home team in these last couple of seasons. They have been somehow, with as young of a team as they have, I don't know how they're such a good road team. They just are. And that's something that just happens to go with Dallas teams in general because the Cowboys are also very good. Not very good on the road, but they're better on the road than they are at home as are the Texas Rangers. But Luka Doncic is the one superstar in that draft that has not taken his team out of the first round. And he's the lone superstar in this up-and-coming age of superstars. Your Trey Youngs, your Devin Bookers, your Giannis's, your Embiid's. He is the only one, Jason Tatum, I'll throw that in there as well. He's the only one who has not been out of the first round. Everybody else has had a different degree of postseason success. Booker in the finals. Aiton in the finals. Giannis in the finals. Went to a conference finals last year. Um, Tatum, been to a conference final. Trey Young, conference final this year. Luka is lagging behind. And yes, he plays in the Western Conference, but I did just mention Booker and Aiton. And yes, he's go- he has a complete turnover at the top of the organization. And by the way, I guess the I guess the reason for hiring Nico Harrison as your de facto co-GM with whatever Bob Volgaris is going to be doing Maybe he attracts people just because of his connection to Nike and he might have relationships to players. I don't know, but I see this as a very analytics-driven team that's going to be built. And you see in Major League Baseball that that's not usually the best way to build teams. Just purely by analytics. What's going to happen is that the best players are just not going to come to Dallas, as they haven't been in general. But the Mavericks aren't going to be bad enough to where they're going to be in the lottery and picking high players, highly coveted players. They're going to be at the end of the lottery and in the middle part of the draft, and they'll have to hope they hit on somebody similar to how the Suns hit on Mikel Bridges, also in that Luka Doncic draft. 
might I add. So they're going to have to do a lot of that and attracting lower level free agents and hope, maybe against hope, that a superstar says, you know what, I'll take that no state income tax and come to Dallas. Because that's one thing Dallas has on one of the on all of the major markets in the NBA, not named Miami. The LA's, the New York's of the world, the Boston's. Dallas and Houston are the only ones that can say we're in a state with no income tax, but Houston is an utter mess. And I mean the San Antonio Spurs are the Spurs. So that should be an advantage, but it's not. You also have one of the more player-friendly owners in the NBA, but it's not an advantage. And you have to wonder, and I think it goes back to Luka Doncic. Luka, not Mark Cuban, not Jason Kidd, maybe not even Nico Harrison, possibly Bob Volgaris though. But Luka himself and the way he plays might be the turnoff that keeps a superstar coming. And that's might be why Luka lags behind the other ascending superstars in terms of postseason success, which really is what matters when we talk about legacies. Okay, let's move on from the Mavericks to a team that plays roughly 25 minutes down the street, depending on traffic. The Dallas Cowboys are on hard knocks this year. And I am excited as I have ever been for a hard knock season. Because somebody in the marketing industry said, let's go get the Cowboys. Now, there are certainly a bunch of dysfunctional teams that you could have put on hard knocks. You could have put the Denver Broncos. You would have probably gotten a good quarterback competition there. Between Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater, you've got the archaic Vic Fangio, who I'm not really much of a fan of, but he's the coach nonetheless. Vaughn Miller's returning. You could have put you could have put Denver. Um, you could have put the Raiders, who are just always a show. Were the I guess the Chargers maybe weren't bad enough to be hard knock material. Maybe I guess they might have been. Um, the Lions now have a new quarterback, but would they have been entertaining enough? Basically, the basically. The HBO people said, hmm, America's team with all of the characters it has went 5-11 and last season. We know they're not that bad, but they have the most intriguing, polarizing owner in American team sports. And they're America's team. Let's go get them, and boy am I excited. Because this is what we're going to see on this season of Hard Knocks. We're going to see Dak Prescott in his return from a gruesome, horrific ankle injury. We're going to see Ezekiel Elliott, who, whether he's he's good or bad on the football field, is always a story. You have a loaded wide receiver room. You have an offensive line battle because your two tackles are coming off of injuries, Collins and Tyron Smith. Jalen Smith with his bad football self but makes millions of dollars in endorsements is going to be on hard knocks. And Jalen Smith's career to me, J- 
Jalen Smith, to me, is the most polarizing character in this whole Hard Knocks between him and Micah Parsons. Because Jalen Smith has to know that Micah Parsons is there to take his position, who they drafted, they drafted out of Penn State with the 11th overall pick. They, he has to know that. And Sean Lee is retired, but that, but that linebacker core with the Cowboys on paper is pretty dang good. You have Van Der Esch, who just can't stay healthy, so I guess we get an insight on Van Der Esch's treatment. Jalen Smith, who I just brought up. Micah Parsons, who is a very intriguing figure coming out of the draft. Very physical. Very alpha mentality. And then you have other linebackers on that team that are also going to be fighting for spots. But does Jalen Smith... And look, Jalen Smith's not going to get cut. But the treatment of Jalen Smith at training camp is going to be very, very interesting. Because these last couple of years, Jalen Smith seems to have forgotten how to tackle. Their defensive backfield is awful. So we'll get to see the development of guys like the corner they just drafted out of Kentucky. I can't remember his name. And Trayvon Diggs. I believe Anthony Brown is still there. And then you've got a bunch of safeties. Keanu Neal, who's going to double as like a safety hybrid linebacker kind of thing. Like Jamal Adams does. Or more like what Isaiah Simmons did at Clemson. DeMonte Casey, who also came over from the Falcons with Keanu Neal. So we'll get to see the integration of that. We'll get to see Mike McCarthy in year two. Dan Quinn in his first year as the defensive coordinator. And then, of course, there's Jerry and Stephen Jones. So this could not have been the most perfect season to have the Dallas Cowboys on hard knocks. And so I, so I just brought up the linebackers. But I think the next big story for the Cowboys this season is how will Ezekiel Elliott bounce back from a rough 2020 season and a lot of people will say but his offensive line was hurt the tackles were hurt why could you not run up the interior why can you not run away from linebackers anymore why could Ezekiel Elliott not hold on to the football last season I want to know what kind of work he's been putting on the offseason has he lost weight did he cut off some of that hair? He probably didn't, but whatever. What kind of work were you doing with your hands? Because he was also dropping balls, too. So Ezekiel Elliott is another story that I would like that I would like to see. I want to see how much influence Jerry Jones has in the final roster. Which we know that Jason Garrett was Jerry Jones' puppet, but how much of a puppet is Mike McCarthy? who is a Super Bowl champion and and an established coach and an established figure for a lot of those players who watch who grew up and became young men watching Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy win a Super Bowl by the way in AT&T Stadium. So there's just a lot of intersecting storylines coupled with the fact that how will Dak Prescott's ankle bounce back? Now we know Dak Prescott says he's 100%. Do I believe him? I don't know, I guess. But but we'll see. How will Dak Prescott's mobility be? Because one of the special things about Dak Prescott is that as good of a pocket passer as he has developed into becoming, and he's become one heck of a pocket passer, 
another special trait about him is his mobility. And it's the same question that we ask in Cincinnati when it when Joe Burrow will come back off of that ACL. Will his mobility still be there? Because that's a very underrated part of Joe Burrow. But it's a very standard thing for young, up-and-coming, this new generation of quarterbacks to have is some form of mobility. They all have it. Whether it's to the degree of Kyler Murray or it's sneaky like Justin Herbert. They all have some form of mobility. And how much will Dak Prescott's be hampered? By the way, his offensive line is getting older and is perpetually beat up. So he's going to need it. Sort of like Spencer Sanders with Oklahoma State this past year with his subpar offensive line. So for reasons that pertain to football and that don't pertain to football. And I could just go on and on and on and on about all the different things that we could possibly see in HBO's Hard Knocks. I just want to know who whose reputation is either going to be vaulted or damaged the most. Because that's what I look for. When I watch Hard Knocks. I didn't watch Hard Knocks last year when they had the joint LA uh, series with the Chargers and the Rams. I didn't watch that one. But the year before, y'all remember who that was? It was the Raiders. And whose reputation went down the toilet that year? Antonio Brown. That Yes, that was the Antonio Brown fiasco year. So, I want to know who's going to be that. Now, obviously not something to the extent of Antonio Brown. I hope nobody appears like they don't have any brain cells and doesn't know how to act. And by the way, I'm glad Antonio Brown was able to re-sign with the Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay Buccaneers because he still has a lot of good football left to play. But maybe Ezekiel Elliott and a side of his personality that we have never heard before happens? And I'm here for that. I'm here for, is Amari Cooper as quiet as he appears to be? What, is, what happens with CeeDee Lamb? In, this, in his second season, because he was pretty good last year in his rookie season, does he start to take some of Michael Gallup's reps as the second wide receiver? And then last of all, what happens to Jalen Smith? The biggest personality on the defense who just cannot seem how to tackle or really run with anybody. So we'll see about that. So fun show today. That'll do it for me. On the gray area, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Grayson Singleton. God bless, keep cool, and keep looking for those gray areas. We'll see you next week.